Psalms and chapter 2. I read of a jukebox that offers three minutes of silence for the same price. I read where tenants of a high-rise apartment banded together to threaten a nearby church that they would silence their bells on Sunday morning because they wanted to sleep in. Another church, you know it, right up the road, they were told they couldn't hold their outdoor service above a certain decibel. Doctors agree that teens exposed to loud music at concerts suffer hearing loss. Sound barriers, you've seen them. You just thought they were for beauty, but they're sound barriers along the highways because increasingly our roads are encroaching upon housing developments. What does it all add up to? One of the most serious problems in modern society. It is noise pollution. Add to that voices crying for attention, advertisers competing for dollars, politicians clamoring for votes, and how many times does your phone ring every day with somebody telling you that your car warranty is running out, right? Or some other, some other nonsense. That's why I love the shore in the wintertime. That's why I love a walk in the snow. That's why I love an anchor at the flats or an early morning sunrise. It just feels quiet. You like that? In contrast, Psalm chapter 2, the rage, verse 1, you see it right off the bat. The rage that's mentioned here is not just more noise or, or a, a noisy display of opposition. The world seems to be raging out of control in total opposition to God's original intent and design that we read about in the quiet of Eden. Now you may know, I've mentioned it before, but the book of Psalms is divided into five books. Those five divisions correlate with the first five books of the Bible. So I don't know if your Bible has it or not, or if you've ever read it or not, but we have entered this book of Genesis. So in the Psalms, the first chapters are the book of Genesis. And when you read that this morning, the parallel is clear. Genesis starts out with man in the happiest place on earth, and I don't mean Disney, right? But the garden, and that parallels with chapter 1. You ever committed chapter 1 to memory? I remember as a child doing that and getting some prize, I'm sure, in vacation Bible school, trying to remember it again. But man rebelled against God, and so we turn to chapter 2. That's where we're at this morning. Psalm 1, the children of God. Psalm 2, the children of men. Psalm 1, the quiet of Eden. Psalm 2, the growing rage of governments against God. In this increasing noise, it's harder and harder to find any quiet. And with all the noise that's going on, how do we even know to whom we should listen and take their advice? Well, in Psalm chapter 2, the first voice we hear is the voice of nations, and what we hear from them is defiance. Verse 1, Lord, 
How are they increased? Now I'm reading 3, chapter 2. Why do the heathen rage, and thy people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder, and cast away their cords from us. Defiant is their voice. I hear an awful lot of noise these days that makes no sense. I mean, I look at something, it, I, I come to a conclusion, somebody else looks at something, they come to a different conclusion, totally different. Not just different, but in opposition. I say, how can they do that? It makes no sense. Sometimes we even shrug our shoulders and we think, well, maybe they have a point and you try to understand. Try to give them the benefit of the doubt. I mean, is everything they have to say really a waste of time? Verse 1 uses the word vain or vanity that is for no great purpose. The world at large will never be able to unite around what they love. You see it. Which is to say they are only ever able to unite around what they hate what they're raging against. And the vanity of their rage is simply to silence any and all opposition, as it's described in verse 1, to their imagined way of life, their imagined thoughts and plans. But is it really a waste of time? Have you ever heard the queen in Shakespeare's Hamlet, Methinks thou dost protest? Too much. Oh, you have heard it. Some of you have. And it was in response, and that's a whole other story. She's actually in the audience. But anyway, it's, it's in response to the idea that she, what she is protesting about in the play is actually something she had a hand in. And don't you know that the more you hear in the, in the rage of the world today, it seems they are, in fact, guilty of the very thing they're so upset about. We've all witnessed the pretense of moral outrage from preachers and politicians alike who seem to strongly object to the very thing of which they are guilty. Well, it's a vain waste of time to declare your own innocence. But is it really a conspiracy? (laughs) Verse 2, you see it there. They're gathering together. They're taking counsel together. They're planning together. It's an amazing thing to hear the world speak in unified Defiance against God. Increasingly, the church has a target. Though they may not say it out loud, it's the same sentiment spoken by the hateful citizens in in Jesus' parable. We will not have this man to reign over us. It was clear Jesus spoke of himself, and here in verse 2, it is equally clear that their rebellion is against Jesus. It calls him God's anointed one. So you can pray to Mary. You can talk of all sorts of gods. You can speak with admiration about figures like Muhammad, Gandhi, St. Teresa. I mean, you go down the list and everybody has something good you know, to say about some of these folks. But if you declare 1 Timothy chapter 2, that there is but one God, and there is but one mediator between God and men, 
And that's the man Christ Jesus. And you will face unified opposition against the name of Jesus. My dear friends, the rebellion of the world at large is not simply the misguided effort at self-improvement among those who all just want the same. Don't we all just want the same thing? They clearly hate the same thing. And they are working in concert with the devil, whether they even know it or not. And instead of rejoicing in the blessing of God's creation, I mean, when I look around, I see all that God has created, and I say, oh my goodness, what a great God we serve. But they want, above all else, to be free from God and free from His Anointed One. You see it there in verse 3, where it talks about breaking the bands, breaking away, casting away. Sure, they can be obnoxious at times, but aren't they just trying to make the best of things? I mean, they're just misguided, right? Aren't they just misguided? Isn't evolution, for example, just an attempt to better understand the world in which we live? Isn't that all it is? Just, it's just another view. Isn't the idea that abortion finds its roots in eugenics, population control, isn't that just the overreaction of an overzealous preacher somewhere? Isn't the idea of legalizing drugs and normalizing gay tendencies, isn't that a better way to control crime and get away from some of the bullying that goes on with some of these things? I would say a resounding no. The picture in verse 3 is of a stubborn, wild animal that would chew off his own limb to free himself from the trap. Sin, they say, is a self-imposed trap for which they are willing to sacrifice the unborn, sexualize our youth, and destroy the family rather than admit it is sin. Such freedom without any boundary is anarchy, and every effort to break free from God's moral law will only ever bring you further into bondage. For those of you who grew up with a catechism, what's the purpose of life? It's to know God, serve and love Him, right? You know that. If you know the scriptural conclusion, Ecclesiastes 12, it's to fear God and keep His commandments. It's the whole duty of man. That's it. As the theologian P.T. Forsyth wrote, the purpose of life is not to find your freedom. It's to find your master. Freedom is not found in the voice of this world, no matter how unified they may sound, but in the truth of this book, God's Word, your Bible which alone can set you free. Now, J. Vernon McGee gives an interesting illustration of what this psalm is like. He said it divides like a television show. And as the camera fades away from this scene on rebellious earth, we return from the break, and the camera is now focused in heaven. And we hear the voice of the Father. And what we hear is pretty interesting. It's derision. Verse Four, he that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure or trouble. 
Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. He speaks as if it's done. What a contrast from the scene on earth, raging out of control. Now we see God. He must be pretty relaxed. I don't think he's really, you know, now he's upset about sin, but I don't think he's particularly concerned as if he's going to be able to do what he planned to do. And it says here he laughs. Now, I remember being approached by ladies, not this church, former church, preaching. I was a young man, not young anymore. But I remember preaching, and uh, as habit would be, you know, I'm, I'm making some joke about something. A lady approached me after the service. She said, Pastor Jim, I don't appreciate levity in the pulpit. Now, you have to understand, I'm a young man. I probably didn't even know what levity meant. And I said, well, it's not like I'm floating the pulpit or anything. Well, that's not what levity is. But anyway, you know, so I was confused. I think she was a little confused. I know better, but my dear friend, the Bible is full of God's sense of humor. And I think it would be a shame if you can't find some to enjoy along the way. But this laughter has nothing to do with God's sense of humor. This is derision, verse 4. This is scorn. This is mock. This is to hold in contempt. Imagine, if you will, some proud person marching against the gates of heaven as if they think they have an answer, and God leans over the gate and says, Oh yeah? You and what army? That's the sense that God's laughter comes forth. Like you think you'd have anything to hold against me. Remember Joshua, he told his army, Joshua 23, One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God, it's he that fights for you, he has promised you. The prophet Isaiah declared, Isaiah 40, The nations are as a drop in the bucket. And he goes on to describe them as a speck of dust on the scales. It just, we just don't, we're just not as important as we think we are. God's authority is not dependent upon your acceptance or on the majority's consensus. While God is rather amused at man's latest attempts to replace him, we also hear his displeasure. It's there in verse 5 we read, which includes his wrath, his anger, this displeasure is not like you might be disappointed with your son or your daughter, somebody you know, somebody that made a choice, you think, oh, well, that's a, it was a poor choice. It's not that kind of displeasure. In the NIV, it says it is terrifying. It's the tone of voice, it's the look on the face that you got from your mother, or you got from your father, or you got from a coach, or a drill sergeant, and you knew what they were about to say wasn't going to be good. It was terrifying. That's what we hear in this voice. You know you've messed up, and you're about to get it. Now, God, the point has been, as it's described in 2 Peter, long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the very next verse The day of the Lord will come. And the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. The day of the Lord, not the day of Christ. The day of the Lord is the day of judgment. I'm pointing from Sunday school class. 
The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. God's long-suffering, but there's coming a day of judgment. My dear friend, there's coming a day of wrath, as Matthew 24 reminds us, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. The word vex. You know what he's talking about. You know he's talking about the end times. You know he's talking about the great tribulation when God will carry out the final wrath upon this earth. So while the world mocks, 2 Peter describing it, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Make no mistake, God is moving forward, and that without delay. Verse 6 we read, he speaks it as if it's already done. It's a settled matter. Sometimes we say, if the Lord will, right? Or if the Lord tarries. That's fine. I, I get that. I get the sense of what we're saying. We're even instructed so much to say that in prayer. But make no mistake about it. God is moving forward without delay toward the establishment of His throne upon earth. Psalm 24, ask a rhetorical question. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, of which verse 6 mentions. There will be no peace on earth until Jesus Christ reigns from David's throne. And now the camera fades again from the throne, and it focuses just to the right of the throne. And who do we see seated there? Jesus. And so we hear the voice of the Son. And what we hear from Him is a declaration. Verse 7. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son. This day have I begotten thee. Uh, we'll come back to that. Don't let the Jehovah's Witness steal this verse. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This voice is telling us what the Father has committed to the Son to carry out on earth. And in case you have any doubt who this is, this person, verse 7, is the begotten Son of God. Psalm 2 was quoted by Paul in his great sermon in Acts chapter 13, speaking of Jesus, whom God the Father has raised up again from the grave. Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. What is the context of that phrase? This day have I begotten thee. What was the context that Paul uses? From the resurrection of the grave. That's the word begotten. John 1. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only what? Begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 3, 16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Is there any doubt who this is referring to? His name is Jesus. And may I just say that when you read the word begotten, and your translation probably has tried to uh, poorly translate it in another way, but it is a reference to the unique relationship 
that one thing has to the other. It has nothing to do with birth, but we read it and we think of the birth of Christ. It has nothing to do with birth. Even when you read about Abraham, begot uh, Isaac, that is not, he didn't give birth. That is talking about the unique, and your Bible may have unique. It's talking about the unique relationship that the Father has with the Son. Don't allow the Jehovah's Witness to take this out of context and say, see there? Jesus is a created being. No, that's not what this is about. He has always, and you can read it in Genesis, you read it in the book of John, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld His glory, and we know that this Word has dwelt from the beginning of time. This is Jesus. Some translations will use the word unique, one and only, that's fine. But understand that more importantly, this reference of the begotten Son of God is the unique relationship that the Father has with the resurrected Son. That's what it's about. The resurrection. Jesus begotten, resurrected again from the grave. Revelation 1, verse 5. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins by his own blood. That's what the word begotten has to do with, our resurrected Savior. It's the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, Ephesians 1, which he, God the Father, has wrought in Christ this unique relationship when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. The person is Jesus. The possession, what he has been given, you see it there in verse 8. He has been given the authority to judge the world. This verse sometimes is used out of context, and if you think about it, you can read this verse, and you can say, well, that's a great missionary verse. Have you ever heard a missionary use it? I don't know. It's a great verse. It really makes for a good sermon if you're a missionary. You can use this verse. You can talk about how you're praying for God to be able to reach the you know, ends of the earth and all of that. But the heathen here of the nations, the uttermost parts of the earth, suggest the universal authority of God's, or of Jesus' authority to judge the earth. John chapter 5, for the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to who? The Son. John 16, when He, that is Jesus, has come, He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, why? Because they don't believe on me. Of righteousness, why? Because I've gone to the Father. And of judgment, because they're following after the prince of this world, the devil himself. The world and all who ever have lived in it and the devil himself are given to the Son, sworn by the name of Jesus, Isaiah 45, recorded in Romans 14, reinforced by the Father in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and even things that we cannot see under the earth. This is the promise, the promise of judgment. Verse 9, when he returns, people may think they have gotten the right to rule their own destiny, but we're only clay vessels. We are weak. We are easily shattered into pieces. 
we studied in Daniel chapter, or in Daniel and in chapter 2, this kingdom of our Lord shall never be destroyed, but it will break in pieces, it will consume the other kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. We saw that in the book of Daniel. Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 21 saying, This stone, speaking of himself, which the builders rejected, is become the head of the corner. And whosoever shall fall on this stone will be broken into pieces. And on whomsoever this stone falls, that's in judgment, it will grind him into powder. You remember the temptation of Jesus? Satan three different times, or three different ways tempted Jesus. Remember the last temptation? I'll give you all these kingdoms, right? Took them up to a high place. I'll give it all to you. You can have it all. What did Jesus respond? Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Revelation 11. When the seventh angel sounded, there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's the promise. On which side of this promise will you find yourself? You may think you're getting away with having it your own way, but soon enough, you and all people will hear the voice of Jesus. Now, if you find that challenging in any way to your heart, the next voice you hear is the Holy Spirit. And what we hear from the Holy Spirit is a decision that has to be made. Verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I love this phrase because it makes you think a little bit. What's that? Kiss the sun. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish from the way when His wrath is kindled. But a little, a little while, blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. The camera in heaven has faded and now is focused again on earth where the Holy Spirit is at work. These kings and rulers of verse 10 are of the same sort of verse 2, who would have nothing to do with Jesus. But now the one who has proven his power and authority to judge the earth takes no pleasure in their destruction, but he would still yet have them repent, even yet. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. His first appeal is to their mind. Verse 10, be wise, be warned. Romans 1, we read it this morning in Sunday school, I think. Because when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful for all the things that God has given us to enjoy. But they what? They became vain, we saw in verse 1, in their own imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so, professing themselves to be wise, look how clever we are, we've landed on Mars, for crying out loud. They became fools. One of the problems we have in the world today is people are educated beyond their intelligence. 
This generation cannot claim ignorance, but neither can they claim wisdom. Because they seek to take what they know and move further and further and further from God, where the only place we are told in Scripture is but the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, but fools have despised wisdom and instruction. So yes, we've landed on Mars. We've got telescopes out in space that show us there are galaxies beyond galaxies. I mean, like, that was a black hole until we now see there's, there's a whole other galaxy there. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible. We split the atom. We have no idea what to do with it. We can't control any of it. When I look around, the Holy Spirit in my heart draws me closer to God, who created all this for our enjoyment. And then he just seemingly flung the stars in space, it says, as if just to keep us from thinking we're all that much, or we're as smart as we thought. My faith is not without evidence. I see it all around me. The Holy Spirit then appeals to the will. Verse 11, it says, serve the Lord. Now that's a choice. Make your choice to serve God, and that with gladness. You see that joy is the result of our service. Many only ever know the service of trying to please their self, but they never know the joy that's found in serving Jesus. Now let's be clear. Everyone is choosing to serve something. But no one is ever as free as they might have imagined. And without a choice, they are by default serving the devil through their own desires. You have to choose. Choose to break free. Choose to serve the Lord. Even at that, though, verse 11 reminds it, but, but don't ever think you're all that much, right? With trembling. Choose the Lord to serve Him with trembling. Blessed nations as we have been. Blessed people as we are, have often made assumptions about those blessings. Romans 1 again. And they have changed the truth of God into a lie and have chosen rather to worship and serve the creature more than the Creator who alone is blessed forever and ever. Amen. God's blessings are not irrevocable. Let me say it again. God's blessings are not irrevocable. Joshua 24, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Only let my service be with humility. And finally, the Holy Spirit appeals to the heart. You see it, verse 12? Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. What an interesting phrase. As someone has said, kiss the Son is the Old Testament way of Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. We know that the Lord will judge, Hebrews 10. We know it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But you cannot convince me that God will ever in this life, turn his cheek away from anyone 
who would desire to kiss him. You can't tell me that. You cannot convince me of that. You can't say, well, they weren't elected. <laughs> you can argue that if you feel the need. I'm, if you really feel the need to argue about election and predestination, I'll take you. You can go there. That's fine. But you're not going to find an argument with me. You can talk about it. You can argue about it. But just consider who in the New Testament kissed Jesus? Judas. Jesus didn't turn away. And the language of Jesus tells me that even at that moment of betrayal, my friend, why have you come? I think even at that moment of betrayal, Judas had the opportunity to repent and be saved. I know it fulfilled prophecy, okay? I know that we could say all sorts of things about it. But don't, don't argue with me that someone cannot kiss the Son. What will you do with Jesus? Only be careful that you do it before it's too late. Right there in the middle of verse 12, the phrase, His wrath is kindled but a little. Your, your Bible may say, but a little while. NIV says, in a moment. New Living Translation says, in an instant. 1 Corinthians 15, in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we'll all be changed. Only then will it be too late to kiss the sun. Whosoever will, but your love must be without delay. Now in this psalm we have seen the rebellion of man. We've heard from the Father who sent the Son and now has left His Holy Spirit because, as it says in 1 Timothy 2, He would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And I'll give you this little, simple little story. Pretty short, but I thought it was profound. In an old frontier town of a bygone era, a horse pulling a wagon bolted. A man in the town, seeing that this horse and wagon was about to strike a child, didn't spare his own life, but went after the horse, controlled the horse, was able to steer it away from the child, save the child's life. That child grew up to be a rebellious young man. And because of his crimes, one day stood before the judge. That young man thought it was his lucky day because he thought he recognized this judge as the man who once saved his life. And he pled for mercy. And the judge said this, then I was your Savior. Now I am your judge. And with the gavel, he sentenced the man to death. Now Jesus is your Savior. And now he has called you to repentance. But then he will be your judge.